Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire McKeever Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. Today, I get to talk with Frank Rogers via Zoom about all things spiritual formation, being gentle with ourselves in the midst of difficult emotions, how he found himself working with the Academy, practicing compassion, and more. Because we're finding new ways to connect and listen and converse with one another in the midst of this global pandemic, note that the sound quality of our conversation may not be what you're used to hearing. However, Zoom has become our trusted companion in these times of social distancing and staying home, and we're grateful it helps us capture these holy and healing conversations right now. Be on the lookout for more discussions with Academy leaders and faculty in the days and weeks ahead. Frank Rogers is the Muriel Bernice Roberts Professor of Spiritual Formation and Narrative Pedagogy and the co-director of the Center for Engaged Compassion at the Claremont School of Theology. His research and teaching focus is on spiritual formation that is contemplative, creative, and socially liberative. A trained spiritual director and experienced retreat leader, Rogers has written on the interconnections between spirituality, social engagement, and compassion. He is the author of Practicing Compassion, Compassion in Practice, The Way of Jesus, and its supplemental curriculum, The Way of Radical Compassion, The God of Shattered Glass, a novel, and Finding God in the Graffiti, Empowering Teenagers Through Stories, which explores the role of narrative arts, storytelling, drama, creative writing, and autobiography in the spiritual formation of marginalized and abused youth and children. Rogers lives in Southern California with his wife, Dr. Elaine Doherty, with whom he shares three young adult sons, Justin, Michael, and Sammy. With his wife, he loves to run, camp, snorkel, and follow baseball. What follows is an honest conversation with Frank about what it is to be human and healing in these uncertain times. It is full of joy and endless compassion. All things Frank embodies and lives in beautiful and inspiring ways. Listen on, beloveds, and enjoy. That I'll get this started just uh, by welcoming you, Frank, and giving thanks that you're taking a little time to be with us here on the Academy podcast today. And would love to just start by hearing about you. I know that you love story and you love to share the stories of others. And I'd love to hear your, a little bit about your story. Uh, who are you? Uh, what do you love? Who do you love? Uh, what is the, the spiritual kind of landscape look like for you in your life? Tell us about that. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity, Claire. It's an honor and delight to, to be together and to, to have this place to share a little bit. Um, so yeah, boy, there's so many directions to, to go with that, with that question. I mean, in, 
in, in terms of kind of my own spiritual landscape, um, I mean, I'm a, a cradle Catholic and was really raised in that post-Vatican II uh, era where um, really kind of the twin to the, the twin movements of, of uh, Thomas Merton and Henry Nouwen and contemplative spirituality and and then also the, the Berrigans and uh, Dorothy Day and and a real commitment to kind of social engagement. Those were the kind of the, the spiritual movements that really cut, you know, I, I cut my teeth on. And um, gosh, from a very early age, um, I knew that I wanted to study uh, spirituality. I mean, I, 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 it wasn't anything about vocation. It, I was never going to become a priest, um, mainly because of, you know, celibacy issues in, in, uh, in our uh, particular church. Um, I wasn't called to that. But uh, from a very early on, I just wanted to know God. I just wanted to know God. Um, and uh, find some kind of uh, harbor of refuge within the, the the cacophony of my inner world and and the and the, and the life that I grew up in. And so I went to to college to study religion and spirituality, and went to seminary because I hadn't found God yet. And went to my PhD program. I mean, I just continued to study spirituality without a, a single hint towards what vocation that would end up in. Um, I just wanted, uh, in, intrinsically loved, uh, uh, loved what I was exploring, and um, and really, it became a became a vocation. So, yeah. Hmm. So, how do you understand that vocation now? Uh, I mean, there's lots of where the words uh, compassion, of course, come up when I think about you, and we'll talk more about that. And um, in your bio, there's the phrase socially liberative. Uh, so, so what is? How would you explain your vocation right now? Yeah, um, I guess the way that I would describe my vocation, you know, I guess me, you know, the image that comes to me, kind of my core kind of spiritual image is the Pieta. I mean, for me, that is kind of ground zero. That That's the heart, the heart of it all. And, um, and, uh, and actually, um, I'm, you know, I've, I've been graced, you know, throughout my own journey to have moments, moments of Pieta, I mean, kind of moments where I experienced myself in that kind of a space. Um, one of them happened at St. Peter's when I was in college, actually, where I went on pilgrimage to go see the Pieta and uh, um, went into St. Peter's and um, uh, couldn't wait because, you know, this image that was so important to me was going to be able to see it firsthand. And of course, it was completely nothing like anything I expected. Um, it was just a, a zoo of tour guides and noise and mass being screamed and and uh, this kind of contemplative encounter with the, the Pieta just wasn't going to happen there. And uh, and actually, um, this was uh, during a season right after um, one of my close friends had died of AIDS. And so this was part of a grief journey. And I was so crushed and disappointed. I thought here I was going to have my moment with the Pieta. Um, and it was being ruined by the, the cacophony of the masses, right? And um, um, and uh, so I just kind of went, you know, on a little tour of the of the Vatican and ducked out into a little tiny room there, and um, and uh, opened a door, went inside, and closed it behind me. It was all dark, and it turned out to be this little tiny prayer chapel, and um, mm. um, and and I didn't really even know. I just kind of sat in a pew as my eyes kind of adjusted to the dark. There was just a single candle, and this uh, at the foot of Mary, kind of up at the altar, and just absolute silence. I mean, as soon as those doors closed, those huge wooden doors absolute quiet 
And I just sat there in that space. And then I heard it somebody sniffling. And I kind of turned as my eyes had adjusted. And there was this young mom um, who, uh, you know, was just probably in her young 20s. And she had a baby blanket in her hand, kind yeah. of t- wrapped around a finger. And she was dabbing her tears. And it was just like this moment. I knew she had lost her baby somehow and, um, and came here to just grieve, to bring her grief before Mary, before this sacred space. And I was just totally, totally lost in that. And she was, we sat there for a while, then she went up there to put the blanket right in front of Mary's feet and just kind of took her tears and signed the cross on, on, the, on the blanket and then walked out. And it just for me became this kind of moment of this is this is the pieta i mean this is that maternal compassionate presence that holds holds all of it holds the sorrow holds the grief holds the cacophony holds the noise holds you know the crowds outside that are oblivious it holds it all and so for me that's really kind of if i were going to explain or describe my vocation i mean it would it would be that i mean my yearning and hope in my teaching, in my writing. I'm a spiritual director in the work I do in communities. Um, it's really to, uh, to embody and, and allow a space of radical grace to, uh, to kind of hold those I'm with and help persons kind of discover themselves in whatever pain, grief, or, or, uh, or joys, or, or ordinariness they find them li- their lives in to be held in that same kind of space. I mean, for me, that's, that's kind of what my vocation yeah. is really about. Yeah, that's beautiful. And for those of us who aren't super familiar with the Pieta, tell us real quick uh, what that is exactly. And yeah, so the Pieta, the, the the famous version is Michelangelo in um, uh, in Saint Peter's, and the Pieta is really an image of Mary who is holding uh, really the dead body of her son as the as uh, the body's just been taken down from the cross, and so in that interlude before they put the body into the tomb, um, she's just kind of holding and uh, holding her own, you know, her own adult son who's just been executed and tortured and. Um, and so it's a symbol of uh, recognizing and being face to face with suffering, not closing our eyes to it, not minimizing it, um, knowing that suffering is real and, and in our midst, and yet finding this maternal grace that can hold it, hold it with grief, hold it with pathos, hold it with compassion, um, that that this too can be um, uh, can be held in a sacred grace that will companion us through that. And and for me, somehow it's in that sacred capacity to hold pain with presence and care. That's where whatever new life is going to emerge. It's going to come out of the uh, the spiritual impulse of that kind of care and compassion. So, Thank you for that. And that's a, a powerful word for course this time we find ourselves in right now of global pandemic and speaking of the suffering and the pain and coming face to face with it uh even if that face to face is right reading an article or seeing an image because we are staying home and trying to be mindful of our own safety but also the safety of others and so that's a thank you for that and, and for that 
offering and that uh, image and depiction for us right now. And I think we'll get into more of that in a little bit. But I'm curious, where did you grow up? Uh, were you always in California or? Uh, yeah, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. So I was, okay. I was born in the city in San Francisco and lived there for a few years and then moved around the peninsula, um, but but lived there, yeah, until uh, late in high school. I spent just a couple years in Oregon. Uh, my, my folks were divorced and my mom moved up there when I was uh, a junior in high school. And uh, then I went away to school in Indiana for college. And then I went out to Princeton in New Jersey for grad school, my MDiv and PhD, and then came all the way back to California, which were my roots. Um, even though it's Southern California, and Californians would say Southern California, Northern California, kind of two different states. Um, the the right. rivalry intense, but but there is something about I am a Californian. I'm I'm a West Coast person. It it really mm -hmm. is where I feel home. Yeah, I'm a Texan, and the listeners of this have heard me talk about that. But we're similar in Texas, and that I'm from West Texas, mm -hmm. and so I don't I don't ever. I mean, I say I'm a Texan, but I'm like. I'm from West Texas. Like there's this whole thing with that. There's a landscape and a vibe and, you know, that's very different than people who are from East Texas or from South Texas or up in the panhandle. It's anyway. So yeah, we, yeah, we no, share no, that. Yeah. 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 My family that's, that's in Northern it. California still think it's a little betrayal that I'm in Southern California and, right. you know, not in Northern right. California. <laughs> right. Well, and my family thinks it's, you know, terrible that I'm in a completely different state. So, you know. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but that's the whole plan, right? That's right. That's right. So, of course, this is the Academy podcast. And so I would love for you to tell us how you first learned about the Academy and that you came to teach with us. And now, of course, you're on our advisory board. Uh, so tell us kind of about your journey to the Academy and, and why you are still with us. What, what keeps you coming back? And then I uh, would love to hear, too, your thoughts on why the Academy is important right now for our church and for our world and what that looks like for you. Oh, yeah. Well, um, you know, so I, I teach uh, spiritual formation and, you know, that, that's been my, my vocational work for many, many years. So I've heard of the academy a lot. I've, and I teach at a Methodist, it's an ecumenical school, but it's rooted in Methodism. And so a lot of Methodist students who've been in and out of the academy. So I, I'd heard about it a lot. Um, I even have a student, Bob Mitchell, who is one of the, the um, academy leaders uh, who, uh, who got his PhD with me years ago as well. Um, but I had never experienced it myself. And uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure how Johnny and I heard of, connected with each other, but some one of us emailed the other and said, hey, you know, I know about your work and, you know, why don't we just have a conversation? And so he called, uh, we, we talked and, and, you know, Johnny is one of those conversations that turned into a two hour conversation. We, it was like we were instant, instant buddies and instant mm -hmm. soulmates in this, everything from talking about uh, baseball to talking about parenting to talking about Merton and contemplative 
spirituality and engagement with the world. And um, it was just this great generative conversation to the point where he actually uh, invited me to join the Academy board um, out of that conversation. And I think I'm the only person ever in the history of the Academy that has been invited onto the board who had never went to an Academy before. Yeah, and, wow. um, and so it was a bit of a risk that Johnny was taking and, um, but, you know, just meeting everybody else on the board, I mean, we, we obviously were breathing the same air. We have the same kind of understanding of rhythms of spirituality and the type of presence we're trying to cultivate in the world. And uh, so I started serving on the board. And, uh, and then um, out of that, I think Johnny gave my name to some folks in Illinois. I, I taught at my first five day uh, where uh, Marjorie Thompson was teaching. And so that was my first real experience of the academy. And, um, and that was serendipitous in, in a number of ways, actually. I mean, one, it was, I got to really feel what this was about and the rhythms and, and having this kind of set aside space um, uh, that is holistic and has multiple dimensions where we can really deepen our, our, our own roots in, our, in, the, in the sacred soil was just a real, real gift. Um, it was also the first time I had met Marjorie. And while all of this was happening, uh, simultaneous, uh, I was having my books published at Upper Room. Yeah. And that all happened because of John McGabgab. And John, who uh, went to Yale and worked with Henry Nowen, uh, my colleague Andy Dreitzer was also at Yale at that time. They knew each other way back when. And okay. when we were looking for a home for our books, um, our work on compassion, we thought about Upper Room and, um, and uh, talked to John. John invited us out to, uh, to Nashville um, uh, and we had dinner with him. And John just instantly instantly got what we were doing. I mean, just, he was one of those people that, that knew kind of what we were about and the, and the potential power of that, uh, that he recruited us to go ahead and, and publish our books with him. And that was right before he was diagnosed with cancer. And um, uh, so he was editing my book on compassion. And it was the last project uh, that he was working on um, before he was not able to continue and, and passed away. And um, one of the very poignant things about that, I mean, just such a, a beautiful, beautiful man. Um, as, as he was passing, he uh, was going through his things and trying to decide what to do with different things. And he was working with Henry Nowen when Henry was writing his book on compassion. John was the research assistant. And so was doing the research, reading the proofs and copy editing. And so when the book came out, Henry gave John, you know, hardbound first, first edition of, of the, his book on compassion. Well, so years later, John is, he's, he's, you know, kind of facing his own death and he sees this book and he gives it to Marjorie says, there's this guy, Frank Rogers. I would really like him to have this copy of the book because I'm just so committed to what he is about. And, uh, and so at that first Academy, Marjorie is bringing me this book um, that's a gift from John who had passed a, about a year earlier and I uh, hadn't, hadn't seen her until then. And, um, oh, and that just is one of those sacred, in fact, it's on my little altar here in my, in yeah. my study. It's just one of those very, very sacred, sacred uh, uh, symbols and, and objects for me. And so, yeah, so things were just kind of coming, coming together yeah. between uh, publishing it up a room, meeting John, meeting Johnny, and um, getting yeah. on the on the board, and um, yeah, it was just graced. It was just really 
praise. You know, John, really John, I, you, you know, John, he's such a beautiful man mm -hmm. with such a fixture at the upper room. Um, one of my favorite moments with John was when we were out there kind of sharing work. We had this, we were at a restaurant. It's right across the street there from the upper room. It's really very nice restaurant. And we'd finished our meal and we were um, you know, kind of thinking about dessert and the maitre d' comes walking up. We thought he was going to give us, you know, dessert menus. And instead he leans down and he says, we're having an issue with fire. Would you please uh, go to the door and walk out right away, right now with your things? Thank you. And oh my goodness. Looked around and people were moving towards the door. We grabbed our things. As we were walking out, we could see in the, in the kitchen doorway, smoke is filled up the kitchen. The cooks and everybody are already out in the front. And then the flames, they had such a bad fire, it gutted that entire restaurant. And here oh. we are standing outside and people are starting to go away. And, and the maitre d' says, yeah, you know what, dinner is on the restaurant. You know, it's just too much to take care of. And John's like, oh, no, no, no. You all are going to be going through such a financial distress. I insist on at least paying for our meal. And the maitre d', okay. And wow. so he gives them, they process the check. John gives them this big old tip and, and we leave. But that was so John. I mean, yeah. just his generosity of spirit his compassion, as well as the absolute calm as this building is burning down. Right? We were just inside, just this grace. It was like, you know, Shadrach, yeah. Meshach, and Abednego, you know, just in the fire there. And no worries. It's going to be okay. Let's yeah. be sure people are taken care of. Let's have some moments of compassion and generosity. And I mean, that was, that was just John. Mm. Yeah, one of the things uh, I'm missing greatly right now is uh, my spiritual direction appoint appointments uh, with Marjorie. Marjorie is my spiritual director uh -huh. because I go to her home and uh, it wasn't a home. It's a home that she's had since now uh, John died. But of course, I walk in and his presence is there mm -hmm. uh, through all of the things that all the books and, and the, the videotapes, they still have video cassette tapes and she still has a VCR of the things that they love to watch. It's just one of the things and uh, that they, they love to do together and, you know, his, his leather chair and, and all of those things. And of course her spirit combined with his is just this, beautiful blanket of love and care. And so I talked with her on the phone uh, on Monday for spiritual direction and it was wonderful, of course. And I was deeply missing being in that physical space uh, with her. And I feel like with John uh, in a really mystical, beautiful way. So I, that's a beautiful story and I'm glad that you shared it with us. And yeah, yeah and it is, yeah. I, I do find that the Academy has a way of connecting folks. Uh, that's, that's just really organic, you know, I mean, cause all of what you just described is of course you and Johnny talked for two hours and, you know, then of course you would connect with Marjorie in that way and, and your books on compassion and, and the beautiful thread that is woven through all of that is, is just remarkable. So thanks for sharing that. Oh, thanks. And that is kind of the Academy, isn't it? Mm, and, I mean, and I love yeah. that image. 
I mean, space is so important, you know, and so like being in that space where John's spirit is and and Marjorie's life is and that, you know, what you said, the blanket of love that they they embodied, it just permeates that space. And yeah. that's one of the things I love about Academy is that it's it tries to create that kind of sacred yeah. space that is a blanket of love and you know, for me, p- part of what it means, you know, to cultivate our spiritual lives is to t- is to take time away. You know, whether it's you know our twenty minutes or an hour during the day to kind of retreat into prayer or retreat into connecting with our soul in the ways that we do, or if it's every week, you know, we go to a wor- a faith community to worship, or we have family night with our loved ones. I mean, little moments of retreat to remind ourselves of who we are and to connect with that that blanket of grace and care. And, and then we have like annual times or we have, you know, the Academy times that are these right. five days where you go away and, and you're, you just permeate in that grace and, and you tend to your soul and you come back home to yourself. You remember who you are mm-hmm. and remember what you know about God and the sacred. Remember why you're in this world. You remember who you love and, and it is, spiritually recharging it's spiritually regenerative and and then we go back into our lives and the busyness and the mm-hmm. chaos and all of that and and you know we kind of live in that tension between retreating and being in ordinary life and back and forth and back and forth and that's a lot what the academy offers yeah absolutely well you mentioned of course your upper room books the practicing compassion and then compassion and practice And so I'm curious why the theme of compassion and of course, so much of your work centers on that. And so what drew you to that and and what has compassion looked like in your own life? Uh, Tell us more about that. Yeah, boy, it's like uh, asking me to share my (laughs) life blood. I mean, it's, it's uh, compassion is, it, it really is the heartbeat of my understanding of, of the sacred and and what what uh, spiritual life and, and cultivating a life from the soul is all about. Um, uh, so why compassion? I mean, uh, I remember when I went away to college. You know, my mentor, in fact, the person who really introduced me to contemplative practice, um, uh, had me reading Merton and uh, Howard Thurman. He was a student of Howard Thurman's. He was also very uh, a student of Martin Luther King. He was very involved in the civil rights movement. His name was James Earl Massey, um, uh, just one of these dignified human beings that just knew something deep and had had this uh, spirit about him that I, I wanted to be like him. Uh, when I grew up kind of thing. And, um, but I remember one thing he said to me, he said, um, uh, God's first impulse towards you and everyone else is always compassion. And if you know this, you know everything. And it just hit me as the truth, right? It just kind of like it rung down into my core um, as, yeah, that's that's the sacred reality I want to know. That's the sacred reality that I want to feel myself immersed in and surrounded by. What what that that is the essence of whatever is healing and restorative and, and sacred in our world. And so I so I always had like a pivot towards you know exploring and and a yearning to know compassion. Um, and then the place where it kind of can 
you know, intersected with my life, um, uh, to be honest. So, I mean, the real kind of core of my spiritual journey is I'm, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. And so um, that my, my spirituality has really been nothing more than trying to find resources uh, to stay alive, to find um, uh, healing, to be able to restore relationship in the midst of the uh, the agonies and uh, uh, the tortures of of being uh, a victim of sexual abuse, and mm. um, and so in my early years, I mean, of adolescence and young adulthood, um, I mean, I was my spirit was absolutely devoured by depression, by rage that I couldn't fully understand, um, by despair, by anger and fear, uh, loathing, by by repulsion towards being touched, um, uh, just these, this inner world of, of that was of such force. I mean, I felt like, you know, the demoniac, you know, in the, mm-hmm. in the Gospels. I mean, I mean, I really, I was that person. I mean, I cut myself. I was ravaged yeah. by demons, and uh, I, I was institutionalized um, uh, twice um, with with uh, severe breakdowns. And um, and so my spiritual quest has always been: how in the world do you navigate life? One in a way that can live with all of these demons that rage inside of us um, uh, and live with some resilience in a world that is just violated and filled with brokenness. And, um, and I tried everything. I tried every spiritual practice, every therapeutic process. I mean, I have been in and out of every type of retreat trying to find a way to, to work with all this. And, uh, and I wasn't getting very many, getting very far, mainly because I hated myself. I hated yeah. all of the rage. I hated the despair. I hated the shame. I hated the depression. And so I was at war with it. I mean, I would try to suppress it. I would try to, you know, suck it up and grit my teeth and do centering prayer to make it go away. I would try to judge it. I would try to castigate it. And it only made it worse. I mean, I say now it's kind of like trying to push buoys underwater. I mean, it just pops up with greater and greater force. And so literally in my own spiritual kind of work, I had a shift, you know, way back when where I said, I can't fight it anymore. What would it be like for me to just extend understanding to it? Let me just try to be with it. Let me just try to say, okay, rage, you're here. Why are you here? What what is it you're trying to tell me? What is it? And it was kind of like Jacob wrestling with the demon. I mean, sort of like, okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ignore you. Um, I'm gonna try to understand you. And and in the course of that, everything changed. I mean, everything changed. And I began to discover that everything that was happening inside of me that was ravaging me was actually there for a reason. It came from somewhere. It it had some impulse that was trying to help me be safe or help me uh, to protect me from its perceived danger or it was rooted in these wounds that that still ache to come into the light of day and be met with care and and compassion and as i began to hear and understand kind of the cry underneath my inner world my own heart opened towards myself I mean, I started to feel understanding and compassion towards this rage or this demon of despair or the, or the, the lust that was consuming me or, or the, the anxiety that was crippling me. And as I 
access that compassion and extended it to myself, they relaxed. It was like, that's what they wanted. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to be met with understanding. They didn't want to be demonized. They didn't want to be repressed. They didn't want to be talked out of their experience. They didn't want to be judged. And so I just began experimenting with, all right, what would it be like to just start extending compassion to my inner world? And everything shifted from that. I mean, it began really a years long kind of personal exploration. I mean, I have journals filled with all of these little, little kind of adventures of what would it be like to try this, you know, compassion with this part of myself or this part of myself. And over time, um, I began to become sane again, <laughs> mm. found my right mind. I kind of returned to my, to my best self. And so that was really the, the, uh, the soil out of which I experienced the power of compassion as a restorative, personally restorative process yeah. and, and an invitation. And, and I really only started, you know, kind of, I mean, that became, and it still is my daily spiritual practice is just, okay, what's stirring in me today? And let me just kind of spend some time befriending it and listening to it and, and extending compassion and bringing it into the light, integrating it into uh, some, some place of harmony. And, uh, and that became my prayer practice. And Andy Dreitzer, whom I mentioned, um, we started teaching prayer practices, um, we, we're on the same faculty, and I started kind of alluding to this, and he asked about it, he said, Frank, what is it you're talking about? And I said, oh, this is just something I do. And he knows the history of spirituality, and all. he says, you know, this sounds kind of unique to the way, you know, mystical practices usually discussed. And, and so we started talking about it, and we drew out, you know, we had this kind of approach to compassion, and, and the books came out of really the excavation of, of this particular process. And and, uh, and then, you know, the, the counterpoint was the way in which extending that kind of care and compassion to my inner world was so restorative. Well, it's just a mirror to when we treat each other in that way as well. So when we can, instead of demonizing or repressing or trying to fix people or talk them out of their experience, listen to folks with care and understanding and, and a genuine curiosity that whatever they're experiencing or saying or thinking or doing or feeling, it's rooted in something important within them that is aching to be heard. And that becomes relationally and socially restorative and transformative. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Did you find particular practices in Christianity or in other religions that looked similar to this or... Or was it something that just sort of intuitively you knew and then you found them and they kind of matched? Or how did that look for you? Yeah, well, for me, it was kind of like stumbling in the dark. I mean, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't find practices that were inviting me to engage in this type of relationship with my inner world. And, and, and Christian spiritual traditions can really be, it's a mixed bag. I mean, yeah. there's a lot in them that is just a beautiful invitation to contemplative presence and, and connecting with our soul. But there's a lot in Christian spiritual traditions that demonize emotions, that demonize the body, that demonize the imagination, that demonize the ego, um, you know, all these things that we're supposed to uh, try to eradicate or, uh, um, there, and there's a violence, there's an inner violence that 
bleeds through a lot of of uh, Christian mystical literature. Um, so you can, in, in here and there, find little spaces where, where something else was glimpsed. Um, uh, Ignatian, I, I really find Ignatian finding God in all things uh, um, and, and kind of looking for how God is present even in the desolations of our experience would be a, a nod towards where some of that was. Um, uh, some of the uh, the women mystics in, in Europe, um, Marguerite, uh, for example, um, Julian, um, would have some of this real radical understanding of acceptance and grace interiorly, but but it's always countercurrents. It's it's against countercultural and against the institution, um, certainly against hierarchies of power and um, and so you have to really, really dig. Um, but you can find little glimpses. And you can find glimpses in other religious traditions. One of my students is, is Jewish. And, um, and he is working on the, the Baal Shem Tov, who, who said he was doing the exact same thing. He called it sweetening the emotions. Which I just loved, you know, and so he would invite folks instead of with our angers and and our, you know, fears and anxieties, um, instead of repressing or throwing the demons against the rocks to slay them, what would it be like to sweeten them, that there's something beautiful in them and they're just they're out of proportion or they're a little distorted, but they mean well, they have something important gift, but they need to be restored. So let's extend the light of compassion and sweeten them, um, you know, and in Sufi literature, Rumi and Hafiz would have elements of this as well. So you can find it in different spiritual traditions, but in virtually all of that, it's still countercultural to the institutional practices of those religious traditions. There's something scary about opening these doors. Well, and, and something threatening to those in power for those of us who feel powerless to then become empowered by our own grace and joy and love, uh, right? When we become empowered by that, everybody better watch out because that's a force, you know, more powerful than, than anything. So that's a force unstoppable. That, that's right. Yeah. When people start to trust their own experience, um, yeah. there's wisdom in, in the way I'm wired and my impulses, my desires is actually a, a, a current through which the sacred is, is meeting me. And, and I'm invited to live true to that inner voice, that inner knowing, no matter what anybody in power or any institution or anyone externally says, that's dangerous. And that's what Jesus was saying, right? Your faith that's what heals you, your faith, not the priests, not the sacrifices, not going through. It's your own inner knowing, your mm. own connection to that sacred reality. That's where power is. That's where your dignity, your sense of love and, and worth and belovedness live out of that space. And yeah, that's going to be very threatening to anybody in power who's trying to maintain power by forcing us to live by their voice of authority, not by our inner voice of authority. Right. Absolutely. It's radical. Right. There's the, the saying, the ancient saying that when we heal ourselves, we heal seven generations forward mm -hmm. and seven generations back. Mm -hmm. And in my own journey of healing, it's been a really profound awareness uh, to sort of meditate on the healing that I am doing for my grandmother. Mm -hmm. 
um, there's something really beautiful about that and in a way that I can connect with her still today mm-hmm. that is, is, has been really meaningful. Yeah. In my journey. And, and then beyond that, and even uh, I was reading a poem and I'll have to find who it was, but that basically was saying, I make eggs the same way my father's mother made eggs and I never met her. Mm-hmm. And so I'm making eggs from a woman who I didn't know, but who I know every morning. Right. And so there's just this beautiful connectivity in it too. Yeah. yeah. Well, she's in your DNA and somehow you're in her DNA and time right. flows differently here. And there's something that when we're doing our own healing work and our restorative work, I love that it, it flows into the generations in both directions and yeah. something in the universe is healed. And um, yeah, yeah. So that's beautiful. Yeah. So right now in the midst of this global pandemic, I'm curious what, your practices of compassion have to say to it? Uh, What do you think, what is the cry right now or the cries of the earth and how as spiritual leaders are we able to hear and respond in faith and wisdom and love? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an unprecedented time we are in and, um, I mean, and it's, you know, simultaneously, we are becoming so aware of just how really interconnected we are, literally, right. I mean, around this earth and around this globe. And, and, and here in this moment, I mean, as a planet, we are all experiencing and navigating the same thing. It's never happened in history where the attention right. of the entire planet, whether you're in Zimbabwe or South Korea or in Russia or in Nebraska, we are all in this and keeping our finger on the pulse of what's happening with the virus and, and what, do we, what do we need to do to stay safe? It's like, it's like a, a cosmic consciousness that has just never, that never been experienced like before. And, and we're also can be feeling as isolated as right. we've never felt before. Here we are quarantined um, and separated from um, our routines, uh, separated from our loved ones, separated from the work that gives us meaning, separated from the resources of food, of, you know, that, that sustain us. Um, so it, it's an extraordinarily, extraordinarily challenging time as well. Um, and yes, so the invitation of compassion, I mean, our approach to compassion is the invitation is always first inward. It's always first to yourself. It's, you know, to, we call it taking yeah. the U-turn and, and having compassion for ourselves and whatever we are experiencing and enduring. And as we're able to tend to our own selves with care and compassion, we'll access the resources for compassion and connection and care for others. But when we are weary and exhausted and overwhelmed or terrified or uh, alone, um, then then we're not going to have capacities to be able to meet the world with resilience, let alone with, with genuine care and compassion. So for me, the first invitation is let's be gentle with ourselves. I mean, every... Probably every one of us now is, is is exhausted by this. 
every one of us is weary in one way or another. And, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual director. I've been seeing a lot of people th during this time. And, and, and the weariness, it's taken multiple forms. I mean, for some, it's been a nice little respite, a little bit of break from a routine and, um, you know, some quiet time and things like that. But, but the isolation's getting old or ha having to run to the market, you know, uh, only once a week and all of that is starting to get old. For others, it's really severe. Right? I mean, it's the kinds of things that are being faced, whether it's having children at home that you're homeschooling or trying to care for full time while also navigating a job that is suddenly done online and electronically and not in the ways that we're accustomed to and, and not having a break from, um, from the intensity of being around uh, each other and all of the needs and uh, being separated from our routines and all of that. I mean, that could be extremely disrupting and extremely disrupting and hard to stay grounded, uh, let alone folks who are even encountering it to even a more serious degree. People who are losing their jobs, people who are unsure where the rent money is coming, um, or people who are on the front lines right now. And I have directees that are chaplains in the hospital and nurses um, or, or custodians in institutions. And and what they are enduring and living through um, is, is extraordinarily terrifying and um, so we're all in one way or another experiencing, and I kind of think of it as, it's like a global Lent. I mean, we are all in Lent. We're being stripped away from our routines. We're stripped away from, you know, the basic ways that our needs are usually met. We're face to face with mortality on a daily basis. And, and it brings up stuff. It, it, it is challenging. It is difficult. And so the first invitation of compassion is to, is to turn inward and listen to our own souls crying out in their unique ways, wherever we are in our experience of this. And, and how are we going to uh, find the resilience within, whether that's being sure we take walks or you know, tend to our diet or um, uh, get a little quiet time or, or connect with somebody if we have too much quiet time, um, mm. that we really do need to, to, to tend to ourselves with care and compassion in, in the midst of this. Um, that'd be a huge, huge invitation um, that, I'm, that I'm noticing. Yeah. And I, I think that's often the scariest <laughs> right? I mean, for so many of us, because in many ways, it can be a lot easier to just focus outward and what are the needs of everyone else? And how do I, you know, attend this meeting and show up at this place and feed this person instead of saying, okay, how do I attend, you know, me pointing at me and, and feed me uh, literally and figuratively. So yeah. yeah, that's a beautiful invitation and a challenging one. <laughs> and speak, you mentioned, you know, there are uh, so many of us, I'm one of them who find ourselves at home uh, with school age or young children uh, in a way that we never have before. So I have a seven month old daughter and a four and a half year old son and both my husband and I work full-time jobs and are now, of course, in that scenario that you just described of being home, figuring out how to work online, how to carve out space. And I'm deeply grateful that I have a, a partner in that and, and we share a calendar and we figure that out together and uh, give gratitude for that. 
And you and I have connected uh, throughout the years uh, over parenting and the joys of it, the challenges of it. Um, And so I'm wondering if you just say more about how being a parent helped and helps shape your faith and how your faith helps shape your parenting and has throughout the years. Yeah. Yeah. What a great, great invitation to reflect on. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I was actually a single parent um, from the time Justin was three uh, until 18, until he went away to college. Um, And so for those, yeah, those 15 years, it was the two of us. Um, So I I can empathize with with being overwhelmed with with the demands and the needs uh, that that, kind of come and go. Um, So for me, um, first of all, I guess the way that my faith and spiritual life affected my parenting was um, was I made parenting my vocation. Um, And that was just something that was really clear to me. you know, I, I think from the time that uh, his mom and I separated and, uh, and I knew what the future was going to look like, um, uh, I, I said to myself, you know, one, I, you know, my own parents were divorced um, and, and I knew what it was like to navigate that. And, and I was hoping that would never happen to one of my, to my children. And here, here we were. And, um, and I said, okay, well, I, I am going to make it my priority. I mean, this is going to be my vocation. And, and my kind of vocation as a professor and all of that, it took second place for 15 years. With, and that was very clear in my mind. It was very clear in my school's mind. Um, it was also very clear in Justin's mind um, that, you know, I, I had to you know, work out of home occasionally. I had to rearrange meetings to, to get rides and take Justin places. Justin accompanied me on work trips or places where I would speak or, or would come to my camp to campus here and do homework in, uh, in the back of the room while I'm teaching a class. I mean, you know, I have students that ask about Justin, you know, because they felt like they, they knew him as well. But but the point that I'm making was um, was that I literally understood this as vocation that that my call that um, as a as a person of faith that what God was inviting me into was to be a person who would raise this child with grace and dignity and care and intentionality and not let parenting get lost in the vocations or, or the other occupations of our lives. Um, yeah. uh, and that, and that came out of my own sense of faith and what I thought it meant to be a person of integrity. Um, so it, it, it really shaped me directly in the way I approached parenting. Um, it's a sacred trust to bring a child into this world. And, and, um, and, and so how are we going to be with that um, with purpose and intentionality? Mm-hmm. Um, and and of course it shaped me too. I mean, my gosh, that was my identity for years and years. It was just who I was. And um, but one thing that occurs to me, um, I have to say, you know, people said this, but it 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 I never knew it until Justin was born. But literally, Justin is a person who has a part of my heart. My heart does not belong to me completely anymore no matter what happens in our relationship. If if we had a falling out and we don't speak for 20 years, I mean, no matter what happens, he is in my heart. My heart is in him. And his joys, they give me delight. His pain, 
they touch me like nothing else can. Uh, he, he literally, his experience is just so deeply connected and he's his own person and, and we're very intentional about letting him live his own life and having that space, especially because we were so close for so many years. I mean, we, we were very, and, and we still are, we're very, very close. Um, I had to be even more careful that, you know, he has his identity apart from me. Um, but no matter what he's doing, that, that is just the truth. I, I will love him. There's nothing he could do that I wouldn't love him, that I wouldn't just, yeah. my heart is completely embracing of him. And, and I've never experienced that. And, um, and, but experience that viscerally. And for me, that is like a metaphor. It's more than a metaphor. I mean, you know, Julian of Norwich says, we're not just made by God, we are made of God. It's like when God makes us, God gives a part of God's heart into us. And God knows that feeling of no matter where we are, if we haven't talked in months, or no matter the highs or the lows, God is achingly connected to us deeply, intimately, and would have it no other way, would have it no other way. Yeah. That being rooted in that kind of being known, being met, being embraced of that blanket of love you described, that's life. That's life. And I have a viscerally different experience of that, being a parent and knowing what it's like on, on the other end. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like being a parent to an adult child? <laughs> Is it different? Is it the same? <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I, I gave heart and soul. I made so many sacrifices. I mean, literally things were on the back burner for books I was writing and all of that for 15 yeah. years. And I remember, I mean, it was, a, it was one of my most poignant days when I took Justin, he went to school in Vermont. And uh, so we drove out or flew out there. And, and, um, and, you know, the day we were saying goodbye, we were both tearing up and, you know, saying our goodbyes. And you know, it's just so precious, you know, and he, you know, he said, you know, dad, um, you know, one of the things that's really going to be hard is, is having to be separated from my best friend. And, you know, and I just like, oh, I'm crying and he's right. crying and, you know, okay, I'm just going to get the car here. And, and I remember driving away thinking, I did it. I raised him. My job yeah. is done. I, I've completed. I mean, I got him to a way to college. He's a young adult. He's on his own. I mean, we'll, we'll always be connected, of course, but my parenting job is done. Well, I was in for a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Maybe, maybe. I mean, my parents were utterly uninvolved in, in you know, mm. my, you know, much of my early life, let alone when I went away. Um, but, um, but no, being a parent to a young adult is equally being a parent. It's just a, a different type of parenting. And, and it's navigating, for me, the biggest navigation has been helping, you know, I, I think being a young adult in today's world is extraordinarily challenging. I mean, it's, you know, studies show that, that this is the first generation that's going to be economically in a poorer position than the parents' generation ever um, in, yeah. uh, in North America, ever. Um, and, you know, the challenges of finding work and securing housing and, and uh, going to college, paying, all of that, it, it's extraordinarily challenging. But um, for me, the biggest thing has been so being a supportive companion, being a safety net to fall back on, um, being a, an encourager and, and, and a, I believe in you, kind of a presence all the way along and 
letting him stumble and fall and find his own way that's the that's the 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 the, the, uh, the creative tension of of parenting a young adult has been mm. in a different way than it was when he was at home and and it was more about really meeting all of his needs to help him have a foundation to then survive out in the world so but it's very much yeah we're Still a full-time job being a parent. Yeah, Ongo- ongoing vocation, <laughs> ongoing right? Vocation. Great way to say it. Yeah, my, uh, my best friend's mom has said to me before that it is, in her experience, most challenging being a parent to young adult children than it ever was with toddlers. Mm. And of course, I'm, I kind of pause at that and think, I mean you don't live with a four and a half year old or a two year old or whatever right now. Uh, And there is an amount and a level of control that I have that I can imagine, right? Once they do leave the house, we don't have anymore. Or my dear friends who are parenting and trying to raise children who are in their teens and, and what that looks like. I mean, Johnny and I talk about this a lot. He has a, 17 year old and 11 year old. And, and so in we, I, it's kind of the idea of sharing field notes, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> you know, and, and we kind of have to all do it together uh, because raising a child now, of course, is in many ways different than it was 30 years ago. And many things are still the same too. So being able to share those notes together is is a helpful thing. So, I, I, yeah, I'm glad you said that because that that really rings true too about being a, a, a parent of a young adult is um, is the terror around mm. the dangerous world that he's in that you have no. I mean, you're not even around. I mean, he's you know he, he's right. he's a year traveling the world. Uh, study religion in context and and so was around the globe for a a year and you know i mean the different places where he could have been in places he was in the things that could have happened i mean the stakes were so much higher than you know i'm than than the kind of worries i had about his safety when he was eight or when he was 12. um and and that rings true there there is a, a a real spiritual invitation in that that part of it as well. What do we do with the, the fears that we have of a dangerous world? I wouldn't say it's easier or harder. It's just different, you know? Right. I mean, right. Was, had its own challenges too. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, they're different. Each one is its own invitation. Each one is its own tech challenge. Yeah. Right. I become more and more compassionate mm-hmm. with my parents. Mm-hmm. The longer I am a parent. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So my mother still worries about me and my safety and how I'm doing and my emotional, you know, state, all of these things. And whereas in my twenties, I would get really annoyed and not call her back or, you know, and all of that is a developmental thing. Now I'm all, I hope that my children call me back <laughs> one of these days and, and, and that we have that kind of relationship and that we can grow together. And so uh, Marjorie in our spiritual direction asked me on Monday what she could pray for me about. And I paused and I said, I really need you to pray for me 
with Wade, my four and a half year old right now, because while I truly believe and know that I am not meant to be all things to him and that I can't, given our current reality, I'm being asked to in many ways. And, and Adam is my husband because we're his playmate, his pastor, his parents, his teachers, his, I mean, the list kind of could go on and on. And so I just asked for prayer in helping me remember that that is still true. I am not to be all things for him and I can't be even now. And so giving myself that compassion and grace and space and, and understanding it has been an important part for me right now. Yeah, I can totally hear that. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's so easy to get wrapped up in that either the expectation that I'm supposed to. And so we overexert ourselves or the guilt we start feeling by beating ourselves up and, um, right. or the, just the understandable reactivities we're going to have the irritations and the exhaustions and all of that. And to be able to say, wait a minute, let me cut my breath here. Just take a moment and remember, you know, who I am as a parent, what is mine, what is not mine, and and just kind of come back home to myself is a self-grace, a self-compassionate invitation. Yeah. Before bed the other night, I said, Wade, I'm so sorry that I got frustrated with you earlier. I'm human. It happens. And I just hope that you'll forgive me. And he looked up at me and he said, when were you frustrated, mommy? <laughs> I thought, well, uh, let me count the ways. <laughs> so I don't know. I just thought it was such a kind response. And I was so appreciative in that moment for his, perhaps it's obliviousness or just his, you know, forgiveness and grace and just saying, not a big deal, mom. I got, you know, we're going to be okay. And that was his, his way of reminding me. <laughs> Oh, cool. You know, it makes me think of, you know, the whole log in our own eyes and the sliver in someone else's uh, the way too, that like my frustrations that we have towards our kids, they're so big in my head. I mean, they were a log. Oh my God. I was just horrible. You know, I was feeling such terrible things and yes. for them, it, like it hardly registered or it was just a little speck, you know, you know, ah, it was no big deal or whatever. And yes. so sometimes we're our worst enemies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious, just as we wrap up here and come to a close, uh, what you're working on right now, and I'm curious if what you're reading, uh, what what's feeding you, and uh, those two could be connected or separate. But if you'll tell us about that, yeah. Well, um, actually, what I'm working on, um, I mean. I'm working on compassion-based approaches to spiritual direction project. Um, but my, my, my soul work right now is uh, I'm, I'm writing a, a memoir um, mm. about my sister. Um, you know, my sister, she passed away um, three years ago. Uh, she actually took her life. And, um, and uh, we, we grew up in the same family. Um, we were, you know, suffered very similar abusive circumstances. We were, you know, raped by the same person. And we went very different paths. I mean, you know, I was yeah. like I mentioned earlier, tortured and, you know, for a lot of years, but found resources. I, I found, a, you know, a, a places of life and hope and, and I'm, I'm not that person anymore. I mean, it's, it, it really, mm. it's a beautiful, gracious thing. Um, 
but she didn't. And, yeah. um, and she ended up in, uh, in a, an abyss that she couldn't get herself out of and, um, and took her life. And actually the last time I saw her, she, we were, um, uh, it was Easter Sunday. So this is all very fresh, you know, Easter is really has a different meaning for me, but, um, um, she had been in a inst institutionalized and we got her out for a while and, um, and we were sitting by the beach and, um, and she was just kind of telling me, cause this erupted in her. I mean, she was like, you know, Meg Ryan, she was just kind of a slight person and, mm. um, homemaker and, you know, didn't get into therapies and traumas and all of that. And, um, and it just erupted, but, um, but we sat there in the car by the ocean and, and she asked me, uh, you know, you, you used, you were in an institution once yourself. You used to be, you know, you, you were so enraged. You had that horrible time, you know, 25 years ago. How did you get out? How did you heal from all of that? And, and it was like in the moment, you know, she, we got she was just out of the hospital. I mean, she was hardly coherent, you know, but she, and, there was, wasn't a lot I could say. I mean, it wasn't the time to share the whole story. And, you know, I decided I got good help, Linda, and, um, you know, we can get you good help and I'll be with you. And, you know, just, I hope so. And so actually I'm, so now I'm kind of writing the memoir, which is answering mm -hmm. her question. It's both tribute to her and um, what she lived through and um, what happened to her and her story alongside and, and, you know, a person who grew up in the same family and, and kind of the resources of hope and healing and, and restoration that I discovered. And, and it's really kind of telling both stories. It's a story of, of death that sometimes, you know, sometimes Good Friday is the end of the story for some folks and others, whispers of resurrection are glimpsed and both are true stories and they mm -hmm. both need to be told side by side. So, um uh, so yeah, so actually this little space where I'm not traveling as much as I was supposed to be has given me a little space to be, to write. And uh, so that's what I've been um, back into for the last uh, few weeks and, and feeling that generative energy when you're writing a, another book. And um, so my reading is really kind of around that. I'm reading yeah. some memoirs, um, Bipolar Faith by Monica Coleman, my colleague. Um, beautiful, yeah. beautiful book. She, it's just so beautifully written and um, the body keeps the score. My kind of go-to space for uh, by Bessel van der Kolk on trauma and the healing possibilities within that. So, mm. yeah, lovely. Well, I wonder as we say goodbye, if you might have a scripture, a poem, a blessing, a word of hope and love for us in this time. Yeah, well, as, as, when you asked that question, I just kind of pondered. And what came to me was um, a Leonard Cohen song um, that many of us know, Hallelujah, mm. um, I, which I just love that song. Um, I love the, the gravitas in his voice, this person who's been very weathered and beaten up through life and yet is still finding um, some capacities to make music out of it all. And uh and for me, that's, that's, it's kind of the pieta all over again. It's, it's facing suffering and not minimizing it, not um, pretending it's not there. And yet, while facing it, finding resources of beauty, resources of creativity, of hope, of kindness, of compassion. And um, So we had a little line in that song, um, uh, what, there's a blaze of light in every word. It doesn't matter which you heard the holy or the broken, hallelujah. And so some of us are feeling the broken hallelujah more mm -hmm. right now 
Some of us are feeling the holy hallelujah right now. Um, but both stories are true. Both experiences have light that still shines through them. And may we know the grace that holds them both like, like the maternal face of God holds the broken body of, of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You are a gift to us, Frank, and we are appreciative and better for knowing you and experiencing your compassion and your joy. So thank you again. Oh, well, thank you, Claire. This is a graced time as always to be with you. Thank you for, for this invitation. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening along with us today. We recognize that having a podcast is one thing and having folks listen and engage with it is entirely another. So we're grateful you're here, you're listening, you're journeying, you're engaging. The Academy and all of its offerings exist because of you. Feel free to share this podcast with others. May it be a balm, a prayer, a guide, an inspiration, a beacon of hope in your daily lives. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation, join us at the next five-day or two-year academy. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org. Thank you.